I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saded 13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, historian Rashid Khalidi, the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University and author of the book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine joins us to discuss the Gaza War, as well as the histories of Zionism, the State of Israel, and the Palestinian identity. We'll also be discussing the settler colonial paradigm, the Biden administration's response to the bombing of Gaza, and much, much more. With all that in mind, let's get right to it with Professor Rashid Halidi. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very, very excited to be speaking with. He is the author of 100 Years War on Palestine, and he teaches at Columbia University. Professor Rashid Halidi, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. If you could, the reason I wanted to have you on was to discuss the background of the current Gaza war. What do you think people are currently missing uh, in the analysis of this war and everything that has led up to this? Because, you know, I I feel like there's a whole history between Israel and and Palestine uh, before October 7th that can't be ignored if we want to understand what's currently happening. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, Obviously, what started on October 7th represents an entirely new chapter. Um, Some kind of paradigm change, some kind of paradigm shift may have started with those events for a variety of reasons. But 
and I can go into them if if you want. But to assume that history started on October seventh is is foolish in the extreme. Who's in Gaza and why they're in Gaza? What the nature of the relationship between Israel and Gaza is uh, takes you back to issues involving occupation for fifty six years, uh, the siege of Gaza since two thousand six two thousand seven who the majority of the population of Gaza are. They're people who were driven out of their homes back in 1948, in many cases from communities immediately around the Gaza Strip, where Israeli settlements that were attacked on October 7th are located. So there are many places you can go back to to understand what happened starting on October 7th. Uh, You can take it back to 1948, when 85 or so percent of the population of Gaza or their ancestors were driven into the Gaza Strip during the 1948 war, or back to the 1956 occupation when Gaza comes under Israeli control, or back to 2007 when a siege is imposed on Gaza, since when most Gazans haven't been able to leave the Gaza Strip and they've been subjected to extraordinary limitations on fuel, food, water, and so on and so forth. Israel, you know, controlling what goes in and what goes out who goes in and who goes out. I think all of those are important factors to keep in mind. This is part of an occupation that's gone on since the 67 war. It's the longest or one of the longest military occupations in history. And that means that the entire population of the Gaza Strip, the entire population uh, of the West Bank and East Jerusalem have been living under alien rule or alien control since 1967 with very limited rights, if any rights at all. So those are, to my way of thinking, all things that we should keep in mind when we consider the cataclysmic changes that began on October 7th. One thing I want to get into uh, briefly here is because I I know that someone out there listening is going to try to throw this up and say, well, you know, you can talk about the occupation in the West Bank, but uh, didn't Israel disengage from Gaza in 2005? So I wanted you to be able to... um, talk about that and just talk about what we mean when we talk about the occupation. Right. Uh, If Israel had actually completely left Gaza in 2005, Gazans would not have their population register under Israeli control. Gazans would have been able to freely move without Israeli permission. Gaza would have been able to import and export freely. In fact, Israel controlled the Gaza Strip from without, from the very moment that it evacuated its settlements and evacuated its troops from the Gaza Strip. So in practice, the Gaza Strip was occupied from without and completely controlled from without uh, by Israel. So, you know, it's a distinction without a difference. Uh, The cost of maintaining troops in Gaza was too high. And so Israel tried to reduce those costs by maintaining its control from outside uh, the limits of the Gaza Strip. But you couldn't fish from Gaza without Israeli permission. You couldn't leave. You couldn't there was no. There's nothing you could do without the permission of Israel. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, the, there was Palestinian autonomy within that area, as there is in the West Bank. But Israel could enter anytime it wanted, as it enters the West Bank anytime it wants. So ultimate security control and all the aspects of sovereignty remained in Israel's hands, whether in the West Bank or in the Gaza Strip. Could you speak to the period before 48, what was mm-hmm. this land that is known as Israel or Palestine? What was it like before 48? What were its people? Well, the overwhelming majority of the population were Palestinian Arabs, Muslims and Christians. Um, most of that population was rural, but it was a population in which literacy was expanding rapidly. 
it was a population that was urbanizing. It was a population which had, you know, newspapers, had um, a, a thriving business community, had a thriving professional class. Uh, it was changing very, very rapidly, like uh, other Arab countries all around it, like Egypt, like Lebanon, like Syria. Um, it was a country which had a large Jewish minority even before the beginning of modern political Zionism. There always was a Jewish community in the four holy cities in Jerusalem and Hebron, uh, in Safad and in Tiberias. Um, mainly religious Jews, uh, but also many uh, Mizrahi Jews, Arabic-speaking, uh, indigenous Jewish populations that had lived there, you know, forever. Um, but it was an overwhelmingly a a Arab society. Uh, in 1917, approximately 94 or 95 percent of the population were Arab, uh, and of the five percent that was that were that were Jewish, uh, a, a large proportion were, you know, people who'd been there for a very long time, either religious Ashkenazi Jews or uh, local Mizrahi Jews who'd been there for yeah, forever. Um, the, it was a society that was beginning to be affected, uh, seriously affected before 1948 by the rise of modern political Zionism, which sought to transform Palestine from an Arab country into a Jewish majority country. And obviously that produced all kinds of reactions. And most of what we've seen is a function of those reactions since, since the, the, the beginning of the 20th century. You were very specific there in what you said. You didn't just say Zionism. You said political Zionism. Mm -hmm. uh, could you say that? Why do you use that term political Zionism? Because I do know, I know people in Israel that would call themselves uh, anti-Zionists who say that they're um, they're pro-cultural Zionism, but they're against political Zionism. Yeah. So what, what are the differences in the different forms of Zionism? Well, I mean, there's always been a connection between the Jewish religion and the land of Israel or Palestine. Um, there have always been Jewish populations there. I mean, even when the Romans deported uh, populations, even when the Babylonians deported populations, they mainly deported elites. There were always people who stayed. So there's always been a connection between the Jewish people and the Jewish religion uh, and this place. I mean, this is where Judaism began after all. Um, but and and there always was a desire to return to Zion. I mean, it's an it's you know if my if my right hand forget thee, you know that that's that's uh, next year in Jerusalem. That sense of uh, a longing for a return to be achieved in religious in a religious sense with the coming of the Messiah, not to be brought about by a political movement. That was always there, and there were always people who would travel to Palestine to study to live, to worship, to die um, in uh, the Holy Land, mainly concentrated, as I've said, around those four holy cities, Hebron, Jerusalem, uh, Tiberias, and Safat. But the idea that the Jewish people were people in the modern national sense, the idea that they could not live among uh, non-Jews, the idea that they had to form a Jewish state in, in, in Palestine, is a late 19th century nationalist idea that didn't occur to anybody before that. In other words, the great, great, great grandparents of today's Israelis would never have dreamed of living in a Jewish state in Israel. Um, it, it, the idea didn't exist. Modern nationalism didn't exist. Uh, and and, and the, the rabbis were very much against that idea. You don't hasten something that's supposed to happen in God's time. I mean, when the Messiah comes, the Messiah comes. And at that point, this, these things would happen. And before that would be blasphemous and sacrilegious. What then leads to the formation of 
the, the Palestinian national identity? Mm-hmm. Well, multiple factors, like all national identities. Um, one of them is obviously resistance to Zionism. When you have people coming to take over your country, you gather around and you defend what you see as your country. Um, one of them is a sense of a connection to the land. I mean, there is a sense in Islam and in Christianity, as in Judaism, of a holy land. Um, there's a verse in the Quran which talks about the, the the prophet's night journey from Mecca to Jerusalem, and that the land around it is blessed, um, meaning meaning the, that it's a holy land. So that's a that's an idea that exists in in uh, in, in Islam as it in, exists obviously in Christianity and as it centrally exists in Judaism. And those ideas in Christianity and Judaism are picked up and repeated in Islam. In other words, the the Hebrew prophets are are are, are Muslim prophets. And the connection of the Jewish people to the Holy Land is seen as the beginning of a connection of the Muslims to the Holy Land. So those kinds of connections and a sense of a place that has a specific sacrality um, was common, actually, to all three monotheistic religions. And so for Palestinians, that's an element in their identity, as it's an element in the identity of Jews and of Jewish people and today modern Israelis. Um, there are other elements, uh, Arab nationalism, the rise of a sense of Arab peoplehood, um, and then the idea that that peoplehood is represented in smaller national groups. So Lebanese, Palestinians, Jordanians, Syrians, these are identities that exist before the rise of ma- modern nationalism, but not as national identities. You know, if you lived in Syria, it didn't mean that should be the nation state uh, within which your political loyalty lay. Uh, it just meant that's where you lived. And, or if you lived in Palestine. So the term Palestine and the idea of Palestine is there, but it becomes a national idea with the rise of modern national consciousness as the idea of Jewish peoplehood is there. And it becomes an, an idea related to a, a nation state and modern nation state nationalism with the rise of modern nationalism at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th centuries. That's actually what I was going to ask you next. When, when do these sort of identities, like where would you place the formation of these identities within the like timeline of history because what what i often hear is uh this claim that well the the palestinian identity doesn't exist until after the 67 war and i don't think that's true i think it you can find examples of it before that but go on i mean i i wrote a whole book entitled palestinian identity in which i trace it back to about the same period that most of these national identities including zionism um developed uh, Zionism really doesn't exist before the end of the 19th century as a modern political phenomenon, as a modern nationalism. Um, it rises with the rise of nationalism in Eastern Europe. It rises with the rise of a new form of anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe. I'm talking about Zionism now. And Arab nationalism rises in response to European nationalisms, European imperialism, um, Zionism, um, and uh, the rise of modern nation state nationalisms in the Arab world. And these are all late 19th and early 20th century phenomena. I mean, if you didn't have a sense of Palestinian identity, you wouldn't have had a newspaper called Palestine, Palestine, established in 1911, which says, you know, one of the reasons for its founding is the cause of Palestine. In other words, you already have some kind of consciousness there, even before World War I, even before the, the Zionist movement has fully geared up with the Balfour Declaration in 1917. Um, so uh, Palestinian uh, the idea of Palestinian consciousness and the development of a national identity is pretty much coterminous with the developments of Egyptian and Syrian and, and for that matter, Zionist identities uh, around the turn of the 20th century. 
and in the first in the first couple of decades after World War One. One thing that I think is really important to speak about is uh, there's a lot of debate now about the settler colonial paradigm in understanding Israel-Palestine. Right. And I see a lot of people trying to attack that now. However, what bothers me about the attacks on viewing it through that paradigm is that even the founder of revisionist Zionism himself uh, seemed to acknowledge that paradigm, uh, Vladimir Jabotinsky. So can you speak about the issues with um, settler colonialism and why that is a useful paradigm? Well, it's the correct paradigm. It's not just a useful paradigm. It's a correct paradigm because that's how early Zionists saw themselves. If they didn't see themselves as both entitled to the land and having a connection to the land, but coming as Europeans to settle it and to colonize it, they wouldn't have called one of the main land purchase agencies the Jewish Colonization Agency. That's not some anti-Semitic slur, you know, uh, slapped on this institution by some bigot at a university. That is the term they called themselves. And you have the term colony and you have the term settler employed by them in an era in which settler colonialism is accepted globally. Um, you know, the League of Nations is established and settlers' colonial realities are accepted. Um, that changes after World War II with decolonization. But as far as uh, the people who established Zionism are concerned. Um, there's nothing shameful in saying that you are coming as Europeans to settle this land. Uh, uh, Herzl himself said, you know, we will form a barrier against the barbarism of, for Europe against the barbarism of Asia. I mean, this kind of colonial mentality imbued all Europeans at that time. And the people who established modern political Zionism were Europeans without exception. There are no non-European founders of Zionism. There are no non-European leaders of the early Zionist movement. They're all, almost all Eastern Europeans um, coming out of a specific, you know, nationalist environment, a specific environment, anti-Semitic environment, a uh, specific environment of pogroms uh, and of, of, a, of a peculiarly difficult situation for Jewish communities, especially in the Russian Empire, but also in Austria-Hungary and other parts of Europe. Um, so for them, being settlers and establishing colonies and being colonialists in a non-European land was a normal thing. They, they had no problem with that. Um, and that has always been the methodology. I mean, if you look at how land is, is taken, how uh, uh, demography is changed, it is a settler colonial process. It's not identical to any other because most of these most settler colonial regimes involve the the population of a mother country extending the sovereignty of that and the peoplehood of that mother country. So French people go to Algeria. The case of Zionism is different because it's an independent national movement with its own independent objectives to set up a Jewish state. It doesn't want to be permanent part of the British Empire or and they don't see themselves as extensions of Britain. They're extensions of a Jewish peoplehood into the modern national era intending to establish a, a Jewish state. I mean, that's what Herzl says. He's not establishing a, 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 a domain of the crown in Canada, which is what European settlers in Canada were trying to do, or Australia were trying to do. They were trying to set up their own independent Jewish state. That's the title of Herzl's book, The Jewish State. So it, 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 ha it has characteristics in common with other settler colonial processes, but it is also distinct and unique in, in, in various respects. Taking this up to the, the past few years, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about um, what has happened since October 7th and maybe the paradigm changing a bit. But, you know, during the Trump administration era, 
we had Trump recognizing the illegal annexations of the Golan Heights in East Jerusalem. That hasn't been reversed by Biden. Uh, we also had in 2018 the Jewish nation state law. Uh, can you talk about how these developments have affected uh, things in the past, I would say, 10 or so years? Yeah. Well, first, the, the American recognition of the annexations. Um, the United States has moved away from a position which declared that the these this occupation of the territories that Israel took in 1967 was illegal and that settlement in those territories was illegal to talking about settlements as an obstacle to peace and to uh, finally under Trump recognizing uh, some of these annexations, specifically the annexation of occupied Arab East Jerusalem and the annexation of the occupied Syrian Golan Heights. Um, this is a big shift. And it, it, it has all kinds of implications. Um, the United States has moved from basically arguing that what Israel was doing was illegal uh, to supporting it. So Israel has now violated international law in much the same way as Russia violated international law when it occupied part of Ukraine, or uh, Iraq violated international law when it occupied Kuwait. But the United States has recognized those annexations. So it is trampled all over international law. It's trampled all over. It's the pretext for the war, uh, it, for supporting Ukraine in its, in its war, uh, uh, in, in defending itself against Russian occupation. Um, but apparently in Washington, anything goes as far as Israel is concerned. Now, the second part of your question, which has to do with the 2018 nation state law, uh, has enormous significance because what it argues is that there is only one people in this land which has the right to self-determination. And this is not just a law passed by the Israeli Knesset. It's considered a basic law, which in Israel uh, uh, means that it, it forms part of the constitutional framework for the state. There are a number of basic laws. The Declaration of Independence is one of them, and there are a number of others, which are what, what, what serves as a constitution for Israel. So it's a constitutional provision that only the Jewish people have the right of self-determination in this land. It, in effect, denies the peoplehood of the Palestinians as part of Israel's constitution. This is not just a government statement, in other words. Um, and overturning it would require you know, much more than a change of government. So I, I think it, 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 it puts paid to all of this meaningless nonsense that comes out of Washington about a two-state solution. How can you have a two-state solution? One state's constitution says there's no space for a second people here, let alone a second state. And I think this is a problem that nobody in the United States wants to address. I mean, that the Biden administration would address this among many, many other things that indicate its extreme bias in favor of Israel is inconceivable. But anybody who blathers on about a two-state solution would have to confront head on the fact that the Israeli constitution prevents accepting the very idea of another people with the right of self-determination uh, in this land. Is there a way forward where both Palestinians and, you know, Jewish Israelis can have self-determination. What do you, do you see any path forward or is this I mean, the big riddle? I, I think that any, any resolution of this uh, long-term struggle that's been going on for over a century has to rest on certain principles. I don't know how you operationalize those principles. One of them is there have to be equal rights 
for both peoples and for all individuals. Whether we're talking about national rights and rights of self-determination for groups, or whether we're talking about individual rights like property rights or political rights or human rights or civil rights. Um, you can't say this people's rights or this individual's rights take precedence over that person's rights or are to be exercised at the expense of that person's rights or this group's at the expense of that group's. That's not a resolution. That is a subjugation of one group or one set of individuals by another. And that's unsustainable. Not, not to speak of immoral and unjust, but let's just talk about politics. That won't last. That can't last. Um, you can eliminate an entire people or you can reduce it to such a state of subjugation and misery uh, and, and reduce its numbers, as has happened with many indigenous peoples throughout history, such that you don't have to pay attention to them anymore, or you can pretend you don't. I mean, to some extent, that's been done in other settler colonies, by the way, including this one, the one we live in, the United States. Uh, Native Americans dispute that, and they're right to dispute that, and they're still there, and they're still demanding their rights. But most, most Americans just ignore that. If you don't do that, no, no resolution that doesn't involve equal rights is sustainable uh, over the long term. And the other thing that you have to talk about is decolonization. You have to you have to undo mindsets of superiority. You have to undo mindsets of uh, uh, once uh, a kind of security established through creating insecurity uh, for others. And that's that's the that's the current framework. Israeli security is a sacred concept for Israelis, and it necessitates Palestinian insecurity. We have to keep you in cages so we can feel secure. And if you ever burst out of those cages, we're insecure. Well, that's not a sustainable, and that's a colonial mindset. You know, keep them on the reservation, keep them in the Bantustan, keep them in Area A, keep them inside the Gaza Strip. Uh, th th those, are, those, are, those are mindsets that are incompatible with the resolution of this conflict. Now, how you get from where we are to this kind of, of, of setup, I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm not a, a, what's the word? I'm not a crystal ball reader. I'm not a futurologist. I'm a historian. I can tell you how we got here, maybe, if I'm right, and, and, and where we are, maybe. But how we go to that kind of ideal framework, I, I don't know. I can just tell you that history indicates that if you don't resolve those questions, whether it's in the way in which it's beginning to be done in Ireland or the way it was done up to a certain point in South Africa or in Kenya or in what used to be called Northern Rhodesia, Zimbabwe today, I don't know. I mean, each of those is so different that maybe you can only draw limited lessons from them. But th those, are, those are possible places to look for ways in which you can decolonize and ways in which you can establish equal rights. Just a few more uh, questions here briefly. Um, you, you were talking about the paradigm changing after October 7th. Uh, how is that? How, how has it changed in your view? Well, I can talk about why I think it's changed. Um, you are talking about levels of casualties on both sides, which are unprecedented in the history of this conflict. More Israelis and Palestinians have been killed in the past two months than in the case of Israel were ever killed in any of its wars. More Israeli civilians have been killed since the seventh, about 800 or so, than in any Israeli war, okay? The, the highest total that I know of would have been in the second intifada when a little more than 700 were killed. Um, and in most other Israeli wars, most of those who were killed were soldiers. 
So we're talking about civilian death toll. The same is true of Palestine and the Palestinians. More Palestinian civilians. We don't know how many of the 16,000 people who've been killed are civilians, but the overwhelming majority are apparently women and children. So we can assume that with old people, the majority, the great majority are civilians. Um, this is the highest civilian death toll in Palestinian history as well. In 1948, maybe 13 or 14,000 Palestinians were killed. We're way beyond that. Uh, and some of those were combatants, by the way, in 48. So we're way beyond that. And with both peoples, we're talking about the highest civilian death tolls ever. Now that in and of itself creates a new reality. It's very clear uh, to what extent that's true with Israelis. We don't know yet with Palestinians because the suffering in Gaza, we only have a tiny inkling of. We know very much about the suffering of Israelis. We know very much less about the suffering of about 12 times as many Palestinians. Um, and we won't probably know for a long time because the num the total number is nowhere near final. I mean, it may it's now maybe 15 or 16,000. Heaven knows how high it will continue to go. The war is nowhere near over, it seems. Um, so that's one reason for a paradigm shift. A second reason for a paradigm shift is that the entire Israeli security concept was shattered in, on the 7th of, of October. Every Israeli war since 1948, this doesn't count 1948, but it, every, every war since 1948 has essentially been fought on Arab soil. So Israel fought the 56 war in the Sinai. Israel fought the 67 war, invading the, the Sinai and, and the West Bank and the Golan Heights, and so on and so forth. 73 war, fought in the Golan Heights and fought in Sinai. 1982 war, fought in Lebanon. I mean, there have been cases of rocket attacks and terrorism directed at the Israeli civilian population inside Israel. But Israel's wars have generally been fought on Arab soil. Well, this is a war that started on, on Israeli soil in Israeli border settlements around Gaza. All of the civilian casualties were incurred inside Israel. And that is that shatters the whole Israeli security doctrine, which was established even before the Israeli army was created uh, in the militias that made went to make up that army as they were trained by British counterinsurgency experts and taught, you take the war to the enemy. Well, this war was taken to Israel. And that it just it changes everything in, in in many 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 ways. Now I, I don't I, I unfortunately don't think that Israel Israeli military have learned very much from this. They seem to be repeating their past pattern of if violence doesn't work, use more violence. If force doesn't work, use more force. If killing fourteen whatever the number was two thousand one hundred in in uh, nineteen in twenty fourteen didn't succeed, now you're going to kill sixteen thousand or God God knows how many. But it, it, this is, this is, we're in a new era as far as that's concerned. Finally, there's never been a case where Palestinians have launched a military offensive. In addition to all of the civilians who were killed, this was a military attack that defeated the Gaza division of the Israeli army. It actually defeated a division of the Israeli army. That's never happened before. The Palestinians have never mounted that kind of military offensive. In fact, very few Arab armies were able to mount anything like this. The Egyptian and the entire Egyptian army and the entire Syrian army managed to do that in 1973. Uh, that was really the only kind of situation in which the Israeli army was on, on the defensive in that way. This is only for a couple of days, 7th and 8th. But it, 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 again, this is a paradigm shift. I could go on, but I think there are many, many ways in which we've moved into another era, perhaps, as a result of this war, which is not yet over. I think the casualty toll 
what happens to the Palestinians in Gaza, um, what happens inside Israel politically as a result of this war will perhaps be part of a of of a, of, a, of, a, of a other elements of a paradigm shift. But it's it's too early to say. Before we start closing out, one of the problems I have when talking to other people about this issue or or having listeners that are unfamiliar with it is I think most Americans or, or a, a large portion of Americans are very, very ill-educated about Israel and about Palestinians. You know, I have right. people that have, I mean, I've had just people that are not politically engaged say to me, so the state of Palestine attacked Israel. And I said, there is no state. There are these disputed territories. So I guess what I wanted to ask you is, what do you think the biggest misunderstandings people have about this this um, issue? What, what do you think people need to understand? Well, I mean, there's so many misunderstandings. I couldn't, I mean, it's, we, it's probably a laundry list we could do an hour. We wouldn't have time. I, I think the general thing I would say is that there is a misunderstanding of a Palestinian narrative. I think everybody, everybody sentient in the United States has been well-informed, in fact, to the point of indoctrination with the Israeli narrative. You know everything the Israelis want you to know. You know about things that are true and things that are complete fantasy, made the desert bloom. There were hundreds of thousands of pounds sterling worth of oranges being exported from Palestine in 1948, most of them from Arab orange groves. The bloody desert was blooming before political Zionism arrived. But you know, you had the president of the EU repeat that nonsense uh, a few months ago. People believe this stuff. So there's a ton of things that people know about Israel, some of them true and ma many of them false. I think it's important for people to inform themselves about the Palestinian narrative. That's the biggest thing they need to know, that there was a Palestinian people here. This is a, a people that's been prevented from having self-determination throughout its modern history. Um, and that this came as a result, largely, not just of the establishment of Israel, but of the support for Israel. Uh, by great powers, Britain first, and now the United States, which have helped to prevent the Palestinians from achieving uh, self-determination and independence because of their support. You cut out for there for a second. You those said, basic things. Sorry? You Sorry? cut out there for a second. You were saying the support uh, for um, Israel came from the great powers. The great powers, in the first instance from Britain, um, which was in control of Palestine up to, from 1917 till 1948, and which helped to establish the Zionist movement with the power and with the capabilities and with the state structure that it eventually developed. And later the United States, um, that this is, this is uh, Palestinians have been prevented, in other words, from having self-determination, not just because Israel's establishment helped to prevent that, but also because the great powers um, never did anything to enable, in fact, prevented the Palestinians to be very simple. The British right up to the end did that. Um, and the American, United States ever since has, has played a similar role. I think that's true. I, uh, it, it's like when people talk about the um, Camp David summit in 2000, people will say, oh, well, Arafat was offered a generous deal. Well, there's people within the Clinton administration like Robert Malley that dispute that and say, actually, I was there. It wasn't, you know, as generous of an offer. And it, it just it seems like the Palestinian side has never really represented it isn't. And it's not just that the Palestinian side has had enormous difficulty being allowed to sit at the table. It's that the way that this is reported 
and the way that this has been presented almost invariably represents and privileges an Israeli perspective or the perspective of American governments that are allied with Israel. And this is because of the bias of the mainstream media. I mean, the publishers, the owners, the producers, the directors, the editors are overwhelmingly favorable to Israel and ignore or have contempt for uh, alternative points of view or are afraid of challenging an Israeli perspective. And so the news is filtered in such a way that basically things that are lies, like generous offer. Did that generous offer include complete sovereignty and control over frontiers? No. So how generous was it? We're going to give you a little bit of what you want, and you miserable you miserable creatures should just accept whatever we in the goodness of our hearts choose to allow you of your basic rights as a people. I mean, that's only generous from a colonialist point of view or from a from a from a a point of view of a great power treating with uh, m much inferior natives, which is the way the United States, I think, and Israel look at the Palestinians, very frankly. It's certainly the way the Biden administration looks at the Palestinians. That's the last question I wanted to ask you is, uh, how would you grade the Biden administration's response to everything that's been happening? Since the 7th of October or before? Well, since, since the 7th, then, yeah. an F minus. The Biden administration has done something that no American administration has ever done, which is to be complicit in an attempt to expel a part of the Palestinian population from Palestine. Now, Israel has done that in the past. It happened in 1948 with three quarters of a million people, happened in 1967 with about a quarter of a million people. Israel was trying at the beginning of this war, and I think still would like to, to use one term that I've seen in the Israeli press, thin out the population of Gaza. And there is a lot of evidence that the Biden administration in the first week or two of this war went along with this and actually tried to sell this idea to the Egyptian, the Jordanian, and the Saudi governments. They reacted furiously. And that's one piece of evidence. And the administration put a funding request before Congress, which is still before Congress on the 20th of October, which asked for money for people to be displaced from Gaza. So they were thinking this was going to happen. And they apparently were brokering the idea uh, between Israel and uh, 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 Egypt in particular, insofar as expelling Palestinians into Sinai is concerned, but apparently also uh, with the Jordanians. And the furious responses from all these Arab governments is one indication. But the, the, the smoking gun is the funding request for $14 billion for of arms for Israel, including a request for displacement of people outside of the Gaza Strip. They intended this to happen. They were trying to help it happen. It's an absolute disgrace. Um, there's a lot of other elements to their F minus. Uh, this bear hug that the, Netanyahu, that the Netanyahu administration gets from the president means the president basically has signed on to every single Israeli war aim. Uh, he says, keep the casualties down, but in practice, the United States is giving Israel the weapons with which it keeps the casualties going up. Um, uh, you listen to the president, you listen to uh, the uh, Secretary of State, you listen to people in the administration like Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, you listen to this monster Kirby, who's the spokesman for the NSC, and they, they're reading Israeli talking points. I mean, there's nothing they say is not being said in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv by the Israeli government, nothing, except keep the casualties down. And the Israelis say, of course, we keep the casualties down. Of course, we obey international humanitarian law, as they have killed so far 16,000 Palestinians, most of them civilians. 
closing out, um, you know, I know a lot of people are rightfully very upset with what is happening right now, uh, the civilian casualties, and I would say the ignoring of Palestinian perspectives. I don't want to say that I'm hopeful, but I don't think that this is ever going to completely end um, without Palestinians getting their right to self-determination. And I don't think that flame, that desire for self-determination is going to be extinguished. I really don't, I don't see that happening. Um, maybe I'm being Pollyannish. I want to know what you think. I think you're right about one thing, certainly. I think that there has been a, 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 a an enormous shift in the United States and in the world in terms of greater support for Palestinian rights. We see it on campus, we see it among minorities, we see it among unions. I mean, three major unions have come out in favor of a ceasefire in opposition, the UAW, the nurses, and the postal workers union. The Democratic Party in Texas has voted in favor of a ceasefire. I mean, these are straws in the wind. Um, you know, pastors, pastors of black churches paid for a full page ad in the New York Times three weeks ago calling for a ceasefire. This is diametrically opposed to the Biden administration's policy of complete support for Israel fighting the war as long as it wants and objecting to the very idea of a ceasefire. I mean, those are changes. Those are shifts. You look at the polling among young people, the polling among Democrats, they oppose the Biden administration's policy. Uh, so the, these are changes I think may be lasting. Now, I think that that means greater support for Palestinian self-determination, but to achieve Palestinian self-determination, you don't just need a change at the grassroots in the United States, which is beginning to take place. You need a change at the top, and there's no sign of that in American politics. Congress passes bills that are that could have been written by AIPAC. In fact, in many cases, probably are written by AIPAC. Um, you have to have a change in Israel. And, and the, the, the humongous toll of civilian casualties and the horrors that were revealed uh, after uh, uh, the, the 7th of October have shifted Israeli politics even further today. And finally, you have to have a unification of the Palestinian national movement. These, these uh, corrupt, aged autocrats in Ramallah have to be removed. And there has to be a unified Palestinian national movement, which you just don't unfortunately have right now. So for what you're saying to happen, in other words, for Palestinian self-determination to take place, there has to be a change, not just at the base in the United States, but at the top. And I see no sign of that, either with this president or with his possible successor, um, if Trump were to win the 2024 election. Well, I want to thank you again, Rashid Halidi, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, anything you want to say in closing to my listeners, and we'll leave it at that. I mean, two things. Uh, I, I think that what you just raised at the end is very, very important. It's important that this shift continue. And the second thing that's important is that I think people who are concerned about Israel should really ask themselves, is punishing Palestinian civilians in any way likely to provide security for Israel in the long run? I, I think people have to think very hard about that. So this, this idea that you achieve security by creating insecurity for other people is a fundamentally flawed idea. And it's at the core of Israel's security doctrine. And people who support that are basically supporting insecurity for Israelis. So if you have sympathy for the Palestinians, you should object to it. If you have sympathy for Israelis, you should object to it. It's a nihilistic doctrine. It is a dead end. 
And that is that is what we have right now. That's Israeli policy today. Punish Palestinians. Uh, read the article in Plus 972 about what Israel is doing with targeting buildings that have nothing to do with anything. They're just punishing the Palestinians. And that can only have one result of creating more insecurity in the long run for Israelis. That, so, I, In that regard, I just wanted to add real briefly. Yeah, yeah, um, you know, you have these far right figures like Smotrich or Itamar Ben-Giver. And I just, I, I mean, on a very pragmatic level, I just think they're their potential dream of getting rid of the Palestinians or they just wish the Palestinians would go away. They're never going to go away. I just, I don't see it happening. I don't see them being able to complete that. So to me, even on a, a pragmatic level, I, I just think the Israeli far right is is kind of doomed and crazy in their views. Well, they're certainly crazy. I, I, I hope you're right about their being doomed, but they're certainly, they live in a fantasy world. But it's a, they live in a fantasy world, but they have the control of the levers of power. Within, I mean, they control two crucial ministries: the finance ministry and the ministry of the interior. So they may live in a fantasy land, but they also live in a world where they are they're controlling outcomes all over the West Bank and all over Israel. Well, thank you again, uh, Rashid Hilidi, for coming on Parallaxius. Very much Thanks. appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of the program. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rashid Halidi. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is you, the listener, that helps keep this show going. If you can support me at the $10 tier, you'll get a producer's credit. I don't like to paywall many of the shows, although the first 200 episodes are paywalled at this point. Remember that I only have one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. Otherwise, this show is all listener funded. So it really is vital that I ask for your help to keep this show going through a Patreon donation. So, one more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews, patreon.com slash parallaxviews, and with that being said. Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerry Mike, to Parallax Jerry with Jerry The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. 
I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.